going to just jump right on into it, ask you to stand with me as we pray and we read from God's most holy word. Father, you heard our prayer in song. We thank you that that is a prayer of which your answer is yes. And so, Lord, we look forward to seeing Christ and the preaching of his word. Amen. This is what God says to us today. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So we began our studies in Ephesians last week. We did an overview, and um, there is some debate that uh, this was even to the church in Ephesus. Some earlier manuscripts don't even have the word Ephesus in it. But time has proven for us in the church that it is the letter to the Ephesians, and we're going to take it as such. It was certainly a letter that may have been passed along to other churches. They read it, but most of those letters were circular. They went to Colossae and all those like that. What we notice about Ephesians is that in the ancient world, letters began with author's credentials and greetings. Whereas we, you know, good morning, whatever, we'll write an email, and at the end, maybe we'll put our name in our title. It's quite the opposite in the ancient world. And Paul follows that form. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus in, this, in the manner of his day, and, and Paul begin, begins by establishing, establishing his authority as an apostle, thus giving him the right to even write to them, to share with them what God has said. So we see our first point, and really there's going to be two points. Paul the apostle and you the saint. Paul the apostle. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. The word apostle means messenger. Paul was an apostle of Christ Jesus. Therefore, he wasn't just any messenger. He was a specially called messenger of Jesus. The word apostle is apostolos, and it literally means a specially called messenger of Jesus. He tells us that in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And we know from reading our Bibles and our stories in Acts chapter 9 of that Paul was certainly indeed a specially called apostle. We know that when he met the Lord on the road to Damascus and God humbled him, God blinded him, and God in essence, put him in his place. And when he couldn't see for many days, God spoke to a man named Ananias and said, I want you to go into the city to a street called Straight and go to this guy, Saul. His name was Saul at the time. And I want you to lay hands on him, to heal him, and to anoint him. And Ananias goes, God, do you, do you? there's the conversation. God, do you know who this guy is? And this is what God says to Ananias in Acts 9.15. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Think about that. How much security is in that for Paul? Here's your life, Paul. You're going to go before the Gentiles and you go before the kings and the children of Israel. Nothing's going to thwart God's plans. No wonder Paul was secure in being an apostle of Christ Jesus. Before we go any further, though, it would be good to remind ourselves, or maybe for the first time remind you, what are the criteria to become an apostle? Many today would call themselves an apostle. Many today would say they have a special message from the Lord and they have divine revelation has been given to them. As I would tell you, been telling you for years, do not listen to them. 
It is absolutely not true. There are no apostles. There are no special revelations today. There are no special messages from God. What are the criteria to be an apostle? First of all, we know from Scripture, there's no verse for it, but we know by, as we would say in theology, a good and necessary consequence. The first criteria to be an apostle that you had to be a man, a man. All apostles were men, right? Bottom line, that's what Scripture tells us. The second requirement, or a requirement, was that they were an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. There's the verses for it. We're not going to read them. Study it for yourself. They physically saw the Lord Jesus Christ in His resurrected state. They were directly called by God. Literally called by God. They were given divine revelation to write the books of the New Testament. They had the ability to work true signs of an apostle, that is miracles, healings, all the things that we read about were given to the apostles. The age of the apostles is over. No one for the past 1,500 plus years well, let me, let, me, let me just backtrack. You may argue, well, Jesus is appearing to Muslims today. True. They see the resurrected Christ. Some have been called by God in the ministry. Some hey, Matt, may have the ability to work signs. Not normative, but it does happen. So how can you say there's not apostles today? Because no one in the past 1,500 years has been given divine revelation to write Scripture. No one. God is done talking. God is not going to speak to us again outside of His Word until Jesus Christ returns. This is what we have, the authoritative Word of God. This is all God has to say. And if somebody comes to you and says, well, I have a word from the Lord, maybe listen to them. If it does not square with Scripture... Tell them, that's not from the Lord. Be honest, I had somebody just two weeks ago tell me they had a divine word from the Lord for me. And I said, really? Now, I try to be kind and nice in these things. It's hard for me. Um, but I listened, and I said, it's not from the Lord. Why? I said, because Scripture tells me this. It tells me opposite of what you are telling me now. The Scripture says something completely different. Do not listen do not think because it sounds spiritual, it's good. It's from the Lord. Test it against Scripture. Test it. So there are no more apostles. That age is over. Just to be clear. Paul, in stating that he was an apostle, is not necessarily lording his authority over. He's not trying to... Uh, 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 well, he's using his authority, but in a very loving way. He's establishing that he was called by God, but not in an arrogant way. Paul, Paul's devotion to Christ and his joy in Christ was because of why he was an apostle. Not that he was, but because of why he was an apostle. He was an apostle, as he says, by the will of God. That's what it says, right? Ephesians 1.1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. In other words, he's making it very clear that this was something I didn't choose for myself. It was chosen for me by God himself. There are two words in Scripture for the word will. We were talking about this Thursday night in community group, and I told them that uh, the word will, what you think will here means, may not be what you think it means. There's two words. There's will, thelema. It means desire or wish. And I really wish 
something would I really want boom boom, right? That's the idea. And there's the word bulema. It's the command, it's the authoritative decree of God. But the word that Paul uses here is not bulema, the decree of the declarative will of God, the authoritative decree of God, which we would probably think at first. God decided that Paul was going to be an apostle. I'm going to make him an apostle, and Paul has no choice in the issue. That's probably what we normally thought. Well, again, the words of Scripture matter. It's actually the word thalema. And it's much more than God just wished Paul to be an apostle, or his desire was that Paul would be an apostle. The word thalema, when it comes to the will of God, so much deeper. Uh, the Greek uh, uh, scholar, who was actually Greek himself, Saporis Zohadis, defines it for us like this. Not to be conceived as a demand, but as an expression or inclination of pleasure towards that which is liked, that which pleases and creates joy. When it denotes God's will, it signifies His gracious disposition towards something, used to designate what God Himself does of His own good pleasure. I like that. God says, there's this guy, Paul. He's a real jerk. He's he's killing my people. He's persecuting my people. I like that guy. I like that fellow. You know what? He's going to be my apostle. He took joy in Paul. Paul understood that God had good pleasure in Paul. And for Paul, that was amazing because Paul knew who he was. Paul knew who he was, and more importantly, God knew who he was. Listen to what Jesus says about Paul. In Acts 9, 3-6, Now as he went on his way, that is Paul, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard the voice of saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He's calling him a persecutor. why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Jesus said, you're a persecutor. Listen to what Paul says about himself. In Acts 26, verses 9-11, he's, he's, he's in front of King Agrippa. And he says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme and in raging fury against them. Raging fury. Paul was ticked off at Christians. He hated Christians. I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Wow. God delights in this guy? God takes pleasure in Paul? Paul understood this. He writes to Timothy, he says this in 1 Timothy 1, 13 and 14. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Writing to the church in Galatia, he says this, In chapter 1, beginning in verse 15, But when He, that is God, who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son to me, in order that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. He says He was well pleased. God was pleased with Paul, and when God in time and space was pleased to make Paul an apostle, he made him an apostle. He was specially called messenger of Jesus Christ. Paul says, God took delight in me. 
That's why I'm an apostle. No wonder he was so motivated. No wonder he wanted to know Christ and him crucified and absolutely nothing else. Knowing who he was. And God said, I still delight in you. He now turns and he addresses the church. He addresses you, the saint. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. He makes three statements about Christians. They are saints, they are faithful, and they are in Christ Jesus. The late Martin Lloyd-Jones in his commentary on Ephesians, and by the way, you can, uh, uh, the Martin Lloyd Trust, you can listen to Martin Lloyd's sermons. They're absolutely fantastic. The late Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, that these are three truths about every believer. He calls them the basic, irreducible minimum of what constitutes a Christian. The basic, irreducible minimum of what constitutes a Christian. In other words, if you were to define a Christian, they'd be defined by the minimum of these three things, that they are saints, they are faithful, and they are in Christ Jesus. What is a Christian? They're a saint, they're faithful, they're in Christ Jesus. Jesus. The first irreducible minimum of a Christian is that of being a saint. Paul was no saint, but Christ made him a saint. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. The word saint, hagios, holy ones, set apart, consecrated, separate from the world. Separate from the world. They are unstained by the world. They do not live according to the principles of the world. Paul said this is the very reason that Christ came and died for us and called us. Writing to the Galatians, he says this, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. In his commentary, which actually is his sermon, if you listen to his sermon on Ephesians 1, it's actually his commentary. Martin Lloyd asked this question. The question is, are we really truly separated as persons? Are we essentially different from the world? This not only means that we are set apart in the outward sense. I don't do the things that the world does. It means that we are set apart because we are cleansed inwardly. That is the real meaning of the word saint. A saint is someone who has been cleansed from sin inwardly. They no longer bear the guilt before God because they have been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. As Paul says later on in Ephesians 1, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. So a saint is first someone who has been made holy through the blood of Jesus Christ. Secondly, a saint is someone who seeks to separate themselves from the pollution of the world, the way the world thinks, the way the world acts. Paul, writing to Titus, says this in Titus 2, beginning in verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. We are called to live separate from the world. Are we training ourselves to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions? To live self-controlled. Is this where the world we live in self-controlled? Absolutely not. Upright and godly lives in the present age. This is a saint. 
Or as Paul says to the church in Colossae, in Colossians 1.10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Later on, he writes in Ephesus in chapter 4, beginning in verse 17, Now I say this in testifying the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. We see once again, that Christianity is a thinking religion. It's not an emotional religion. If it's emotional, then you'll believe every word from the Lord and every apostle, you'll believe it all. Unless you think. God has given us our minds to think. They think in the futility of their mind. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of your hearts. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. James, the brother of Jesus, tells us what true religion is. Someone says to you, I'm a very religious person. And you should ask them, do you know what James 1.27 says? Well, the first part says is to visit widows and orphans, to take care of them. And the last part it says, to keep oneself unstained from the world. Well, that affects everything we listen to, everything we watch, the places we go. All of that matters now. Are we keeping ourselves unstained from the world? The second irreducible of a Christian is faithfulness. Faithfulness. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Faithful. Pistos. One who trusts in belief that trusts. Again, Martin Lloyd writes this. A Christian is one who believes certain specific truths, and the essence of his belief centers on the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Christian is the saint The Christian, the saint, is full of faith. In whom, in what? Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He believes that Jesus Nazareth was the only begotten Son of God. He is full of faith in the incarnation. He believes the eternal Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and the eternal Son came in human nature into this world. He believes in the virgin birth, and that by Jesus manifested And by that, Jesus manifested that He was the Son of God by His miracles. We have concrete faith. Remember what John taught us. What is the elemental truth we must believe? That Jesus Christ came in the flesh. Do you really believe that? Are you faithful to that? Do you believe that? Are you full of faith that that really happened? Do you really believe that Jesus Christ came in the flesh? Not only do they believe the truths about God, but a saint is one who contends for the faith. Contends for the faith. They do not waver in the faith, and they are seeking to grow in their knowledge of the faith. Jude, again, brother of Jesus, wanting to write to them, says, I wanted to write to you about this, but he says, But beloved, although I was very eager to you to write to you about our common salvation... I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So we see again, faithfulness and saints are together. What's it mean to contend for the faith? Contending for the faith doesn't mean just showing up on Sunday morning. That is certainly part of it. It means being so committed to God's church that you're committed to growing together with the people of God. It also means that you can be counted on, a faithful person. We should look around the church and say, ask this question to one another. Can I count on you to help me grow spiritually? 
You cannot grow if you are isolated. Loved ones, we are faithful in many things. But I'm going to admonish you in a few things, and I say it out of love. If you are really a saint, you are really faithful, you're contending for the faith. Why is Sunday morning prayer so sparsely attended? Why is Bible study so sparsely attended? Why is community group so sparsely attended? What about evening service? Is it not the Lord's day who called you out of darkness and into His glorious light? Is He not worth one day? I don't say this to beat you up or try to make you feel guilty. If you feel pricked in your heart, I hope it's from the Lord and that you act on it. It's only going to help you. Faithful says that I want to contend for the faith, that I want to grow in my knowledge of understanding of God. That my prayer is, as Paul's prayer is for the believers, that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened. They would know the hope of the glory that is ours and the inheritance of the saints. Do we strive for that? The Bible's clear you cannot do that outside of the church. Yes, there's personal study. Yes, there's all those things. But the Bible's clear it's within the context of the body of Christ together that we grow the most. And so I would encourage you if you can, be more involved. Sometimes we're more involved in our kids' sports than we are the church of God. And I understand the busyness of life. I understand there's things to do. But maybe we should stop and ask ourselves, when I stand before Jesus, will I say, I made the right decision not going to church Bible study. That was a smart move. I don't think we will. Uh, I'm not saying you have to be at everything. At every, I'm not, you don't understand what I'm saying. And I understand when you put kids into the mix. It's, I understand. But I think we believe God understands more than he actually does. Being faithful also means that you're committed to being a witness for Jesus. You're telling people about the Lord. Are you ready to give an answer for the hope that you have in season and out of season? How many of us can actually share the gospel? It's part of what it means to be faithful. It means to be a saint, to be in Christ which is the third irreducible of a Christian, is that they are in Christ. In Christ. And if you are in Christ Jesus, if you are truly in Christ Jesus, not perfect, nobody is, but if you are in Christ Jesus, if you are striving with everything in you to contend for the faith, you know that Jesus Christ is your Lord, and you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that heaven is your hope, then you can be sure of this, that God delights in you. Not because of how you think about heaven or how you think about Jesus. That came because God delighted in you first. God delighted in you before you ever delighted in Him. For God so loved the world. For God so loves you that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. Listen to how God delights in you so that you could be in Christ. This is Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ. Pay attention to these phrases. With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us 
in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of the grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth, in Him, that is Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Now, I know that was a lot to take in. Go home and read it yourself. But do you think that God doesn't delight in you? How can that possibly be? Look at what else says in chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Who were we? We were dead in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. This is who we were, pre-Christ, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, Because of the great love with which He loved us. Listen to this. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his, of his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one can boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before Him that we should walk in them." How can anybody say God doesn't love me? God doesn't care for me. That God is not a good God. That God is not a loving God. He loved you before you even thought of Him. He loved you while you hated Him. And He still loves you and calls you. He delights in His children. And because He delights in you, and has made you His own under the grace, you are under the grace and peace of God. You are under the grace and the peace of God. A true Christian is under grace and peace from God. And a true Christian should operate in grace and peace towards others. Grace and peace. Third point. I actually lied. There's three points. Look at what he says in verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The word grace is charis. Favorable attitude towards someone. Peace is irene. It means favorable circumstances resulting in peace and tranquility. As we said, grace and peace are given by God to His children even before they come to faith in Christ. God was favorable towards His children even when they were rebellious and had enmity with Him. Listen again to what it says in Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy. You know, we should be clear, God doesn't owe anybody mercy. He owes you absolutely nothing. He owes me absolutely nothing. It's by God's great mercy 
that He let it rain yesterday. It's by God's great mercy that He let the sun shine today. His mercies are new every single morning, the Scripture tells us. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the fluctuating love with which He loved us, is that what it says? No, because of the great love, great, megas, mega love of God, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. We've done nothing. We've earned nothing. It's been freely, lovingly placed upon us by the good pleasure of God. Because God has given you and me grace if we're His children. Peace. Peace is now the disposition of God towards His children. We sang, the wrath of God completely satisfied. There's not an ounce of wrath left for God's children. Because in the garden, Jesus said, I'm going to drink the cup. And Jesus drank it to the dregs. He drank it all for you and I. How can we not be moved by this? How can we not just sit back and go, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my gods, would die for me? How how can we not want people to know this truth? How can we want to see people, to be okay that people could be under the wrath of God, and just walk away as if there's nothing to see here. They don't see it. But we can with spiritual eyes. The wrath of God is on that person. And I want to share Jesus so the wrath of God is satisfied for that person. We have a choice. Don't get hung up on predestined and chosen and all that. We'll go over that. That's all true. But if you don't know the love of God today, if you're wondering about it, wonder no longer. God loves you. And you can choose to walk under that love and be in the love and be under grace and peace, or you can choose to suppress it, ignore it, play with it, fiddle around with it, semi-walk in it, and it will only result in you being fully under the wrath of God. You'll be so self-deceived. Don't let that happen to you. Peace is more, though, than a sensation of hostilities. It also means that there is an unchanging security for the believer. Because God has made peace with His children through Jesus Christ, it's a peace that can never come to an end. As Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. God does not change. God does not lie. Therefore, peace is for His children in this world and the world to come. Peace is an internal state of God's children. It's an internal peace. that God's children have even when there seems to be no peace. You get the devastating news. (gasps) My whole world has now been rocked. It seems there's no hope, but yet for the child of God, the circumstances is real. It is what it is. The diagnosis is what it is. The loss of the job, the loss of a child, whatever it would be, and I'm not making light of those things. Trust me, they're horrible things. They are what they are, but for the true child of God, there is a peace of which the Bible says passes all understanding. Because the true child of God knows that if he loved me when I hated him, how much more does he love me now that I love him? And that love will carry me all the way through to the end. That I will stand 
and I will know that my Redeemer lives. And I will see him, as Job said. Job said in the midst of loss of everything, I know that my Redeemer lives, and I will see him in that day. It's a peace that passes all understanding. As Philippians, Paul, again, writing to the church in Philippians, says this in Philippians 4, Do not be anxious about anything. Well, hard, isn't it? Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. I think that's the key part. We're quick to give the prayers to God, but we're not quick to thank God. Let your requests be known, be known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. God gives a peace. Grace and peace must be the disposition of us, God's children. We will be more apt to operate in grace and peace when we remember, as Paul did, who we were. Who we were and what God has done for us. We need to remind ourselves of these things. As he, as he says even to the church in Ephesus, remember the heights from which you've fallen. Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, we've been doing this in Sunday school, we're already past this, but he's where he writes this in 1 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 26. He says, For considering your calling, brothers... All right, go back and remember when God called you to faith. It says, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. How many Einsteins we got in a room today? Probably not many. A few. I won't say who. I'll, I'll take myself out of the equation right away. Don't worry. But you understand what we're saying. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Not many of you, I just, I just love the line from Scent of a Woman, bad material, right? Fancy material, right? You're not good enough for the good school. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You want to be wise and you want to be smart? Love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Listen to what he says later on in, in chapter 6. And this is for us too. He says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But... You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Because God has been gracious to us. Because God has made peace with us. As much as it depends on us, we need to live at peace with others. If you're truly a Christian, know that God, is delight, God delights in you. God has delighted in you and does delight in you. He's taken down the dividing wall of hostility between you and Him. And He's put you in a state of grace and peace. And so also we are to live in grace and peace as much as it depends on us.
And we do so, so that together, as one body, one Lord, one church, one spirit, one baptism, we grow together in Christ Jesus to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you in your divine plan from old pulled a man out of his utter sinfulness, the man Paul, and commissioned him to write your love letter to us. I pray, Lord God, for all of us here, for those of us who are in the midst of trying times, in the midst of fearful situations, in the midst of discouragement, of worry or longing, to know that God loves us with an everlasting love. God delights in us. And I don't have to perform for God. I pray, Lord God, that your grace and your peace would shine abroad in our hearts. And you would help us to think rightly about you and about our present situation, which is not worth comparing to the glory which will be ours in Christ Jesus. I pray, Lord God, that you help us all the more to seek out the riches of Christ so that we all the more know the hope to which we are called for the glory of Christ. Amen. Let's stand, let's close in a song.
Praise his holy name. God bless you all.